Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of John and what it means for our lives to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Aaron and me in conversation today are Josh and Betsy Lane, and we are glad to have the two of you with us today. And Betsy, would you start by telling us a little bit about how you and Josh met and got married? Yeah, so we're excited to be here. I am married to Josh, and we have actually, we just celebrated a milestone. We celebrated 15 years of marriage, but um, our story actually goes back pretty far because we were high school sweethearts. Um, We're both from Macon and went to a small high school and started dating back then. What grade were you in when you started dating? Well, I'm a year older, (laughs) so Mm -hmm. I was a senior and he was a junior, and we actually met through my sister. She was his age, and so we kind of became friends through my sister. And then one thing led to another and started dating. So our first memories are, you know, going to prom together and other high school dances and um, youth group events and stuff. So it's kind of fun. But we did date through part of high school, college, and then a couple years beyond that. So we dated for seven years before we actually got married. So we've been together for 22, 23 years. So, yeah. Did y'all go to the same college? We did, yes. We both went to Georgia. Did you go to Georgia, Josh, because Betsy was already there? No, she actually started at Georgia Tech. Yes, and that's did, a whole other story. <laughs> did her freshman year there, yeah. and then I went to Georgia. She transferred there. So so we started at Georgia together, even though I was a year ahead of time. Gotcha. Yeah. So did you go to Georgia because Josh was at Georgia? <laughs> um, I went to Georgia because I realized about six months into my freshman year that that was not the right fit for me. Okay. So, Yeah. Well, that's a sweet story, 22 years. And you always just look at those high school romances that people say, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's not going to last. And sometimes they do. They do. Yeah, we're proof. (laughs) All right, well, let's go to our first things first question. And it is, how old were you when you got your first computer? So like I said earlier, I'm Betsy, married to Josh. We have four sweet kiddos, ages 11, 9, 7, and 2. And they keep me busy at home. The, the first computer question, that's, a, that's an interesting one. So I guess my family got a computer when I was maybe a sophomore, junior in high school. One of those huge computers that took up tons of space. And it was one of those that connected, um, you know, back in the day, they used to connect to the phone line. And I can still remember that noise mm-hmm. it made, you <laughs> know, when it was connecting. It. Yeah, you, you know that noise. And you would, you would finally get on. And then the second someone picked up the phone, it would kick you off the computer. <laughs> So that was our family computer. And then I got my own computer when I went to college because I think it was required that you have one. So I had that. But, you know, they were so basic. I think we had Instant Messenger, which, you know, seemed like Mm -hmm. a really big deal. Mm -hmm. I guess that was kind of like our version of texting or social media or I don't know. It's kind of funny to think about how far we've come with computers I, I remind my kids sometimes, I'm like, you have no idea. The stuff y'all do on computers, like that was never an option for us. We pulled out our encyclopedias, you know, to research for a school project and totally different. I still remember that sound that you're describing when you're <laughs> waiting for it to dial up. And yeah. I would use one at my dad's office and it was always so slow and you'd wait forever. Mm-hmm. And I was like home from college, I think, and in desperate need of getting an email from somebody that I really wanted to see. And I would wait for it to dial up. <laughs> please, please work. Please work. Please work. <laughs> So what about you, Josh? So my name's Josh Lane. And besides being husband to Betsy and father to our four kids, I'm a pediatrician by day at Augusta Pediatric Associates. And then my first computer story. So my parents, my family were kind of early adopters of technology. And so my dad had a computer, I mean, probably in 1987, maybe. 
had a computer that had no internet connectivity, but I got all into, you know, figuring out computers and I was the dork that would read the manual to the computer and stuff. And so I never had my own computer until college, but I actually built that computer, you know, ordered parts and put it together. And that was the computer that I had at, at school. So that was the first computer that I had that was my own. I'm sufficiently impressed or very much impressed, I should say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. technology's always been something that really interested me and so it's it's fun. I mean, it was always a fun fun thing for me. So I've really enjoyed how technology has gotten better over time. It's really neat. What happened to that computer that you built? Well, I used it for a long time and um I even built a, another one in med school and then since then now that laptops are so you know, good and convenient. I don't use a desktop anymore, but now it's all laptops. So, Could you still build one if you needed to? Yeah, I think so. It, it really is not as hard as you might think. I mean, it's, you know, you, you figure out what parts you need and it's pretty easy to get it put together. But as technology has gotten better, it's cheaper to just, you know, buy one that's assembled. So, Aaron, did you build your first computer? I too built my first computer. <laughs> Kelly Tab, if you're listening, you know that's not true. Kelly's our database wizard that I consult often because I can't figure out basic technology things. So, but my family also early adopters, they had probably a vintage uh, Apple computer that's probably worth zillions at this point. I have no idea. I'm sure it's donated by now. But um, I remember the three and a half by what were they? Yeah, yeah, three and a half inch floppy Something. disks. Yeah, yes, yeah. we had the Vanna White one, Royal uh, yeah. Fortune, and a Roger Rabbit one. Definitely, that that was important to me. Apparently, I was not building computers; I was playing games. Um, but also, didn't have a computer of my own until I went to college, and definitely remember the dial-up noise and uh, Napster. Apparently, oh, yeah. forgot about Napster. Wow! Remind me what that was. Uh, you music, music, music. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think it was illegal. MP3 there, music but. theft. <laughs> yep, yep. Mine's not nearly as interesting. I did not build it. I didn't do very many fascinating things on it that I remember. I just remember having a laptop in college, and it was a hand-me-down from a relative, a and it was heavy and a beast, and I kind of lugged it around and. That's all I remember about it. So not very much. But you just, you don't recognize, just talking about your family being early adopters, you don't recognize how much technology is going to change the world. Like just, yeah. you were really on the precipice of, of so many things changing uh, because of the development of that technology. Yeah. And it makes me think, to some degree, of our passage for today. Uh, last week, we were just getting into the beginning of uh, the fact that Jesus's hour had come, and it was an hour that was going to change everything. And now we've moving further into and getting closer to that hour as we continue in our passage for today. Last week, when we talked about Jesus and Mary's response to his raising of Lazarus from the dead and her extravagant devotion and the worship that followed, it really was that raising of Lazarus from the dead was probably the last and most spectacular of Jesus's signs that was recorded in John's gospel. And it stirred some people like Mary to worship, but other people like the Pharisees to plot Jesus's demise. And in fact, really all of Jerusalem was stirred up as Jesus was beginning to make his way into the city. What we now call Passion Week or Holy Week was just beginning. And John used the first 12 chapters of his gospel to talk about three years of Jesus's life. And now he's going to use the latter half of his gospel to talk about just one week. So it's interesting to me that almost the same amount of chapters are devoted to such a smaller time period. He really slows it way down and gives us a look into Jesus's last days, particularly with his disciples. The other gospel writers spent 
a lot of time focusing on Jesus's public ministry, and John spends a lot of time focusing on his private ministry, particularly how he interacts and what he says to his disciples and those closest to him. Just a super quick overview of Passion Week, just to remind ourselves, Saturday night is where we were last week on the podcast, is where uh, Mary anoints Jesus's feet. And then Sunday, Jesus goes from Bethany and goes into Jerusalem. Uh, what we call the triumphal entry, stops to take a look at the temple, goes back out to Bethany. Then on Monday, he comes back into Jerusalem again. As you can imagine, the anticipation is building. I thought this was interesting. About 40,000 people lived in Jerusalem around the time that Jesus came. But for Passover week, that was six times as many. So 240,000 people housed in a city that normally would contain 40,000. You can imagine this expectation, this anticipation, this questioning, who is Jesus? Triumphal entry. He goes back in, cleanses the temple comes back out again, Tuesday goes in, has a lot of teaching in the temple, Pharisees, that plot is developing. Uh, Wednesday, sometimes they call it Spy Wednesday, I think it's when Jesus really was making some movements towards deciding he was going to betray Jesus. And then Thursday, we are at the Passover, the upper room discourse, and eventually Jesus' arrest. So we are there at that place today in chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. Now, if you haven't read, really, from 12 on to 15, I invite you to stop hit the pause button, read it, and join us back, because you're really joining us in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And if you get that context, a lot of things will fall into place. So we're in the middle of what is sometimes called the upper room discourse. Jesus is taking the time to demonstrate and teach important truths to his disciples. And Erin asked when I told her that we were doing the podcast on this section, she said, you know, it felt like last week we were building towards Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. And now it seems like we're sort of taking this little detour, awkward pause into talking about a metaphor, an I am statement of Jesus. You know, why why are we slowing the the roll, so to speak? But really, that's what John intends to do is slow the roll so that you get to hear what it is that Jesus says to his disciples. And part of that is that Jesus himself says, I'm telling you all these things so that you don't fall away because you don't anticipate, you don't understand what's coming. The betrayal, arrest, denials. When you experience all those things, you remember my words and what I told you so that you take courage and you take comfort. And they had that courage and comfort in between when Jesus was crucified and then when he was resurrected. And really, even now, between Jesus's first coming and the second coming, we find that same type of comfort and encouragement from his words. And part of that's what we're going to get today when we're talking from John 15. So Aaron, explain to us a little bit about the metaphor. Jesus says, I am the vine. This is the last of his I am statements. What did you find about that metaphor that was helpful to you? Yeah, I think certainly it does feel like it is a pause. You know, if you're watching a movie, you want it to just flow forward and just get to the good part. Like you're waiting for the resurrection already. Like, Mm -hmm. let's get to that part. So to have this, I feel like it's almost like Jesus is, like you were saying, just pausing and saying, uh, giving us time to digest what he's saying. He's already done this demonstration of washing the feet. So he's showing these self-giving acts of love. He's telling about the spirit coming. So he is setting the scene and now he's painting a picture. So he's saying, this is the way that you are going to do these self-denying acts of love. This is the way that you are going to be connected to me through the spirit. So it's he's saying the true vine, like the Hebrew people would have 
picked up like this is a, a metaphor for Israel. Like they would have known, they would have been referred to as the vine. He's saying, I'm the true vine. I'm the, the Israelite that's doing this perfectly. Israel, the nation had been covenanted with to be a blessing to the world and they failed. And Jesus saying, I am the one who's going to come and do this perfectly. He's also talking about the union with Christ and how he's doing that through his spirit. And they don't get it. Like the lights aren't fully on, like Pentecost will obviously, you know, really be the thing that where they understand about how the spirit unites us to Christ, but he's beginning to sow the seeds of that mystery of how we're united to Christ. So the vine metaphor is telling us once more, he's the life, like he's giving us this idea um, of saying, I'm the life, I'm the root, I'm the creator, like he's announced from John 1 of all things good. He alone is giving the growth and the healing and the fruit. And while we remain in the vine, Jesus is essentially saying to stay connected to me, I'm the life. And that when we continue or remain in our worship and love of Jesus, God is glorified, our hearts are satisfied, and we bring flourishing to the world. Aaron, I always appreciate the way that you bring in context, historical background, uh, what the Hebrew believers, Jewish believers would have been hearing and understanding. Making those connections is always helpful. Josh and Betsy, as y'all read this passage and considered it, what in particular surprised or interested y'all? I think what interested me as I looked at these verses is uh, verse 15 stuck out where it says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So in that verse, Christ is speaking to his disciples and telling them that he will no longer call them servants, but will now call them friends. The reason for that change is because he had revealed all he had heard from his Father. So if we think about applying that to ourselves through Scripture, Christ has also revealed to us what his Master is doing. Um, thus bringing us into that same friendship with him, which is uh, amazing. And that in turn makes me think of how incredible it is that the way God preserves Scripture over time. I mean, the way that we know what we know is because God faithfully preserved his words for us in the Bible. And that's how, you know, John is this apologetic for who Christ is, and, and we have that preserved for us all these years later. And the Scriptures are our source for that revealed will of God, and that brings us into that same place of friendship with Christ. So that's that's what stuck out to me. Yeah, I appreciate that. Just the difference between a master could tell a servant to do X, Y, and Z. And just by the nature of the fact that you're the master and I'm the servant, I'm going to do it or trust that I should do it or have to do it. And God absolutely has every right to ask the same of us. But just that self-revelation that he wants us to know him and he wants us to know his character and he uh, lets us see the things that we need to see in order to flourish and to trust him and to be in relationship with him. It's not just a master-servant type of relationship, but it's deeper than that. Absolutely. The verse that stood out to me was verse 2, uh, where Jesus says that God the Father will cut off every branch that does not bear fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be more fruitful. Um, I'm actually reminded of a very practical example of this analogy. A few years ago, we had a tree fall in our backyard, and it caused some pretty significant damage. It was a beautiful old oak tree, but what we did not realize was that a few of the limbs were dead. And after a heavy rain one night, um, the weight of the water caused two very large limbs to fall. One of those limbs fell directly on our tool shed, damaging the roof and several things inside. And the other limb fell on our playset, completely destroying it. This tree appeared to be beautiful and fruitful, but had we paid closer attention, we would have seen the disease and infection. 
and we could have pruned it before it caused that damage. But our faithful God is the perfect gardener, cutting back branches to promote growth and allowing them to remain fruitful. What a good reminder for believers that God prunes us to strengthen our faith in order that we may flourish. This pruning can be painful and hard. It may come in the form of suffering or discipline, but ultimately it strengthens our faith and teaches us to trust in him more deeply. And this is an ongoing process for believers. God is continually pruning us so that we may grow and deepen our relationship with him. We must remember to stay close to God like a branch attached to the vine, because apart from Christ, our efforts are unfruitful. That's such a good practical analogy, and I was I was thinking as you were saying that, that those tree limbs dropped on the shed and the play equipment. It's so disappointing. Yeah, that's so unfortunate. Disappointing. Yeah, causes so much damage. And then in contrast, just thinking about, you know, you do prune things so that they grow in healthy ways. And I think about, I'm terrible at knowing when to prune what, but you just have that dead growth and you prune it off and then you see that new life mm-hmm. starting to sprout out. I just did that to um, one of our plants and I thought, man, it was so hindered by all of this dead. And then you take that off and it seems like so harsh to be cutting it all back and to almost feel like nothing. But then you see that growth begin to take place and you do recognize that the Lord does prune off the things that would prevent us from growing and really flourishing in that life that he gives us. Mm. Yeah, I love this passage because it helps us see that Christ gives us the dignity of being unified with him. I think one of you mentioned that earlier, how he treats us as friends and not simply servants. Although he's asking us to obey, there is that discipleship element that we are called to move forward in obedience and of, and of laying down our lives. But he talks to us about how it's love that calls us in. Mm-hmm. It's love that causes us to remain. And it's where we know the fullness of our joy. We see Jesus saying, I'm the true vine. I am the fully human one, the one that is bringing you into your full humanity. And this is the way, like the way to full, being fully human, the full, the way that I've designed you to be, the way that I've created to, you to be is I'm the mediator to this. I will bring you to the Father by my spirit. So I feel like there's just beautiful Trinitarian language here. And just uh, the way to do that is to continue in the love of Christ by the power of a spirit. So as we're thinking about that, let's consider how the characters in the passage would have received Jesus' words. and what context did Jesus speak to his disciples, even thinking about a little bit earlier in the book of John? How do you think that context would have affected the way the disciples listened? And in what ways do you relate in your own context? So um, zeroing in on verses 1 and 27, um, we can see some repetition in those verses. Um, We see that Jesus repeats the phrase, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Based on that and some of the other things he said um, in those verses, it seems as if maybe the disciples were scared or confused or anxious, um, and Jesus was trying to offer them reassurance and comfort. We read earlier in John that Jesus predicted one of the disciples would betray him. I'm sure that would have been concerning in and of itself. I can just imagine the disciples taking in this news and scanning the room and wondering who that betrayer might be. I'm sure there was confusion among the disciples, possibly even mistrust, but Jesus offered them these words of reassurance as he was preparing to leave this earth. Well, unlike the disciples, we have the benefit of knowing the full story. We can read the accounts of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, and we can cling to the promises laid out in scripture. We have a Savior who loves us so much that he took on the sins of the world. John 3.16 reminds us that whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. And this is a promise that I am extremely thankful for. 
Yeah, I think going back to what Amber said earlier, the context here is, you know, in the midst of this upper room discourse and, you know, this time of extended conversation that Jesus had with the disciples just prior to his crucifixion. And they had shared the Lord's Supper together, and then Jesus washed his disciples' feet and then predicted his betrayal. And then he spent time in chapter 14 comforting his disciples. So those specific verses in chapter 14, verse 1 and 27, like Betsy said, they, they show Jesus offering, offering comforting words to the disciples as he tells them, don't let your heart be troubled, and, and that the peace of Christ will be with them. That context for the disciples meant that um, they had been reminded just now of Christ's love for them and that he wanted what was best for them. And Amber, I think you alluded to this earlier too, you know, knowing that someone wants good for us primes us to listen and to want to be a part and to obey. Um, you know, players with a coach or um, kids with their parents, um, they can obey out of, you know, fear, but when they know that you love them and you want the best for them is when it usually brings out that best. And so our current context, if you kind of expand from that, I mean, we have the context that the disciples had. We know that God loves us and wants the best for us, but we also have a broader context. We have all of Scripture. We know that Christ, you know, died, was resurrected, and he has ascended to the Father's right hand, and that he sits there mediating for us all the time. So that broader context just sort of deepens our um, ability to appreciate this text and, and mm-hmm. to uh, understand what, what Christ was doing as he spoke to his disciples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just I love the fact that he spoke to them because he knew that they needed to hear what it is that he had to say and just the comfort that he had to offer them because it really was a time of fear, anxiety. Like you you mentioned, Betsy, they, he's all of a sudden he's talking about death and burial and arrest and betrayal and denial. And of course, that's not the storyline they wanted. Those things, we can say those now maybe somewhat uh, more flippantly because we know that the resurrection is coming. And so we sort of breeze over those to some degree, but those are intense and difficult and confusing and heartbreaking. And I just, I think that Jesus knew in their humanity what a struggle it would be for them to experience the crucifixion. I mean, he obviously in his own humanity knew what a struggle it would be for him as obviously on a much more intense level. But for them, for them not to grasp the significance of the crucifixion, they needed that assurance that this is life. Life is coming. I promised you life. I go to prepare a place for you. You will be connected to me. This is not the end. So that they could understand that and believe once they got to that scary moment. And I just, I think about Josh, maybe because you're a pediatrician. And when I take my boys to get shots, especially when they're younger and they just have this fear of that shot. And I always try to be super honest. I'm not going to tell you it's not going to hurt if it's going to hurt. You know, if it is going to hurt, I'm going to tell you how it's going to hurt. But I'm also going to tell you in the ways it's not going to hurt. So I think in my own life, when things that I fear seem to be on the horizon or the unknown is on the horizon or whatever, in those contexts, do I go to the promises that Christ has given me and say, okay, when I enter into that moment, I know these words are going to be true, you know, and I know that I will have that connection to that that life source that he's given. So it was encouraging to me just the fact that the Lord doesn't leave us in the dark, Mm. that he does prepare us and that he gives us what we need in order to stay connected to him and and not fall away. We're kind of commenting on this a little bit already, but what stood out to you in the passages that Jesus has to say about himself? We've talked about the metaphor, but what about that was particularly sweet to you and, and how did it challenge or encourage you in your belief in him? The things that Christ says about himself, I mean, he calls himself the true vine, 
um, in talking to the disciples, and by extension us as his disciples, he says that we cannot bear fruit except in him. He says that if we abide in him, we can ask whatever we wish. He tells us that the Father loves him and that he has kept his Father's commandments. And lastly, that he chose and appointed us. So these comments, I mean, they've they further my belief that Jesus, the son of Mary, is Christ the Messiah and son of God the Father. So the question was, you know, does does it further or challenge? Hopefully it doesn't uh, challenge anyone's belief. I mean, the overarching theme of John is Christ's deity and that he is fully human, like Aaron said, but also that he is fully God and that his relationship to God the Father is one of um, intimacy. And so it's the overarching theme that we see over and over again in this book. And, and so it's definitely confirmed through Christ's words in this passage. Yeah, um, just kind of an extension of that. I focused on verse 5, um, which I'll just say for us again. I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. My translation uses the word remain, but other translations, they use the word abide. I love both of these words. I think they carry rich meaning. Um, this phrase, remain in me means remaining in Christ and believing he is God's son. And by remaining, it's an ongoing verb, we must be careful not to become stagnant in our faith, but actively pursuing a relationship with him. And that was just kind of what stood out to me with um, just, again, furthering my belief that Jesus is the son of God. When you say that about abiding, I was reading just the fact that it's an objective truth about every Christian that they abide with Christ and Christ abides with them. That's um, that's something, a work that's already been accomplished and already um, been sealed and done. And so I just, it helps me because sometimes I think, oh, I'm abiding, I'm not abiding. I'm connected, oh, I'm not connected. I'm remaining, I'm not remaining. Like the, this back and forth, in and out type of thing. But that objective reality that what Christ did is what joined us to him uh, by faith, that that's what we enter into. But that living that out, that consistently living in that abiding space is something that we are called, that he calls us to do actively. And yet it helps me to remember, but he has secured that relationship, that intimate relationship with me. And I don't go in and out of it. That's something that he holds. But how I live in that does make a difference. Yeah, it takes a lot of the weight off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think what, uh, a theme I hear running through this is just the 100% God, 100% man, and the union of that beauty. We see it so clearly in this passage. And I think something that also is kind of apparent to me here is like Jesus is getting ready to install this new covenant, but we find the familiar covenant character of salvation that we've seen throughout scripture. Like this is the same covenant God that we've seen. Like He's consistent through the way he's revealed himself in the Old Testament, even though we see it displayed in this new and uh, beautiful way. So God's establishing this covenant and we enjoy that covenant fellowship and we are called to uh, faith and obedience. And I think that's kind of what Jesus is spelling out here. And he's using this idea of the vine again to help his disciples and us see that he's the life, the connection to the father. And like you were saying, Amber, like he's doing the connecting, like, yes, we're called to faith and obedience, but he's the one that is present and maintaining the covenant, just like he did in the Old Testament. When we continue in him, we know growth and life and healing, the forgiveness of sins. And I think most importantly is that we experience his presence. And that is what our souls cry out for is just to know his presence with us. And I think that's what we see here in that the vine passage and obviously throughout the whole of scripture. But it's just is very clear here that he is the one that is with us and he is the God with us God. Like that mm -hmm. we see that running throughout John. So as we're winding uh, our thoughts up, tell us what are the implications of this text to your life? 
Well, as I think about my life and how it can personally apply um, to my day-to-day living, verse 12 stands out to me where Jesus commands us to love each other as he has loved us. Our lives should reflect our relationship with God. I ask myself this question, am I practicing sacrificial love? Well, most of the time, if I'm being honest, no. I'm selfish, and I must continually ask for God's help to open my eyes to the needs of others, setting aside my own desires and agenda. I see this even in my own home. I can get busy and totally miss the needs of my family. Just thinking of a practical example, I might be in the middle of cooking dinner at night and have two of my children come to me to settle a dispute No matter how small or big it may seem, usually my response is, not now, go away. (laughs) Is that loving them well? No. Is that setting a good example for them of Christ's love? No. I have to pray and ask God for his help to love others well, starting with those right in front of me. Um, This has been such a sweet passage to study and such a great reminder and an encouragement to me to abide in Christ. The more we know God and the more we remain in his word, the more our hearts will be aligned to his will. Well, I love that you mentioned that you have to ask. In that moment, it kind of seems like, oh, Lord, help me to be patient or help me to whatever. And we believe that he does, but sometimes we almost say it more out of just desperation. Mm -hmm. But to know that in that passage that the answer is yes to that. I Mm -hmm. just think, you know, that's a kind of confusing question. Ask whatever you want in my name and it's going to happen. You just think people can go a lot of different directions with that. And maybe it's not easy to answer that exactly how prayer works it is mysterious but you know from that passage that he's saying those things that are fruitful that bring glory to the father that are that come out of what it is to abide in me you ask for those things and I answer them I provide that for you and and in that way of saying I want to love my people Mm -hmm. as you've loved me help me and the answer to that is yes and that's a sweet assurance yeah my thoughts um I echo some of Betsy's thoughts, but I mean, the passage makes me think about how Christ is our mediator to God the Father and how we must um, be constantly reminded to abide in Him, and Christ doesn't command us to grow fruit on our own. Um, He tells us to abide in Him, and we will then bear fruit. We're also reminded of the importance of obedience in this passage, and in modern reform circles, we tend to be really good at understanding grace, but sometimes we neglect Christ's commands to obey Him, just as He was obedient to His Father. Instead of obeying Christ and abiding in Him, we focus on getting things done on a day-to-day basis, you know, cooking dinner, like Betsy said, and, and also on impressing those around us with our selfish ambitions that we have. And our spouses, children, coworkers, friends all suffer from that selfishness. So just remembering to not focus on ourselves and getting, getting things done in the moment, but really to abide in Christ and to ask Him, Amber, like you said, for those things that for the grace we need to be able to get through the day and to not shout our kids away from us, but instead to love them well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, shout our kids away from us. That's <laughs> too true. Oh, wait, yeah. saying that, right? That. No, no. Oh, well, just when, I, when you're saying that, Josh, I think it is so important just to say that the obedience is part of that abiding and that we maybe could think of just abiding as sort of a warm, fuzzy feeling of, I know I'm loved, I know I'm safe. It Not to to downplay that because that is a wonderful thing. That is part of that truth. I am loved. I am saved. I am protected. And part of living that out to its fullest is to obey. Like it finds depth in obedience and just how you pointed out that Jesus lived in obedience to his father's commandments. That was one of the things that he always pointed to is this is how you know that I'm from the father because I obey what he's commanded me to do. And that's in a completely 
intimate love relationship that that obedience goes on. And so just sometimes, at least for me, you kind of feel like you downplay obedience, like obedience is that thing you have to do, but obedience is life. And um, so as I was thinking about that, that abiding, because I, I did find it helpful that it's the objective truth that the Lord has made that connection. I mean, I'm connected to him through the work that he's done and, and by no other way. But in that connection, saying that to live in that means it's, I just had this little quote from uh, William F. Cook writes this commentary focus on the Bible. He just says to abide in Christ means to live in close relationship with him. And the means by which this close relationship is maintained is through trust, prayer, the word and obedience. And just so all of those different elements in, in my own life, recognizing that they're important, they're not such this like hypocritical self-justifying thing I try to do. They really are the way that I act by faith. And so just reminding myself it's worth pursuing those things, even when maybe it feels hard or it doesn't feel natural that I am living into something that's already been given to me. And, and the promise from that is, is fruitfulness. It is a joy. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how he ends that last passage that my joy may be in you mm-hmm. and your joy may be complete. Yeah, I'm thinking about as you're saying that, just that when we live a life yielded to Christ and connected to him, then we're freed up. We're freed up to love others. We're freed up to obey. We're freed up to not just focus on ourselves. Like mm-hmm. we are going to be self-centered. Uh, what was the word you used? Um, Shouters. <laughs> not <laughs> that one. Or selfish uh, ambition. Yeah, like just, yeah. yeah, just so self-oriented performers. Like we're, you know, intelligent, competent people. We can do, you know, great things. But I think walking with the Lord means we're freed up to serve others. We're freed up to lay our lives down. And that. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but that doesn't come from me. So when I see that happening within me, I'm like, I know that that is the fruit of the Lord working within me. Such a helpful uh, discussion. Thank you, Josh and Betsy, for being with us today. Listeners, we hope you'll join us again next week. Let us keep you company while you're chauffeuring the kids around or doing some yard work. Cheryl Whitcomb and Jill Blair will be joining us to talk about John 18 and the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. We hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord who rises with healing in His wings. When comforts are declining, He grants the soul again a season of pure shining. To cheer it after the rain.